Good morning, everybody. I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 4 is found on page 228 in the Pew Bible. And if you are new here today or visiting us maybe for the first time, you're entering into the first third of a series in this uh, book of 1 Samuel that we're calling Who is King? There's a predominant question that flows throughout the course of this book. And that is, who is going to be the king over God's people? And this morning we're going to do something a little different than our normal setup, because we're covering a rather long section of text, three chapters. And so rather than read it aloud to you in its entirety like we would normally do, this morning I'm just going to tell you the story. And in telling the story, we'll see what the Lord has for us by way of particular application. So with that, let's pray together and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity to approach you through the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that you give us the opportunity to sing to you, to give to you, to pray to you, and to hear from you. And we pray now that you would continue to stoke the affections of our hearts to you. That you would continue to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That you would help us, and indeed by the power of your spirit, that you would conform us into your likeness, we pray. Amen. Sometimes a name tells a story. A lot of cultures throughout history are a little bit better at naming people that tell a story maybe than our Western culture today. I think of King Edward the Longshanks of England. Or the Native American warrior, Crazy Horse. And there once was a boy in ancient Israel with such a name that told a story. Ichabod was his name. And his name, Ichabod, meant, where is the glory? <laughs> or, the glory is gone. It's not the type of name that you would want to have if you were a child in Israel. Because every time you went to school and the teacher would call your name, or every time your name would come up in casual conversations, or every time one of your friends would call out, hey, Ichabod! On the playground, everybody would be reminded of one of the worst days in the history of the Israelites in the last couple hundred years. You see, Israel was at war with the neighboring nation of the Philistines, and the Philistines were more than just a formidable opponent. They were the favorite by all external standards. They were the ones that should easily win the battle. But Israel had something the Philistines did not have. They had Yahweh on their side. This was the same God who wiped out the Egyptian army in the sea. This was the same God who caused the walls of Jericho to fall at the sounding of the trumpets. 
This was the God who was mighty in power. And even though that the people of Israel weren't particularly serious about their worship of God during this season, nor were they engaging in their part for the ongoing covenant relationship that they had, they still were very confident as they went into battle with these Philistines that God was going to help them defeat their enemies. And so they went into battle. But after one day, 4,000 Israelites had died. And so they came back to the camp and they asked among themselves an important question. Why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? It's an interesting way to phrase the question. I mean, by external standards, they were simply overcome by a more powerful army. But they knew something else was afoot. They were followers of God, and as followers of God, they knew that everything was spiritual, at least in some sense. They knew that the Lord was the one who was either passively allowing or actively involving himself in the defeat of Israel against their enemies. They knew, therefore, that their problem was not just now simply with the Philistines. Their problem was with God as well. And so they devised a plan. And at first blush, the plan seemed like a good plan with pure motives attached to it. They said, well, maybe if we take the Ark of the Covenant of God and put it out in front of the battle and show everyone that God is with us, if we put him first before us and show everyone, including the Philistines and including God himself, that he is indeed first in our nation, then surely we will have victory. It sounded like an interesting plan. But the more I think about it, the more I'm not so sure that the motives were quite so pure. Perhaps, just perhaps, they were actually trying to force God into a corner. I mean, after all, God clearly hadn't given them the victory on day one, and there was no indication that he was going to give them the victory on day two or any where after. But on the other hand, God surely wouldn't want the Ark of the Covenant to be captured by the pagan Philistines. Therefore, if they brought the Ark into the battle, he would have to give them the victory. Because surely God would not want his name defamed among the nations. And surely God would not want this Ark of the Covenant to be in the hands of the pagan Philistines. And so, now we have a plan that's cooking. God has to do what I want him to do. For his own good. And for mine. God would not be manipulated. God would not be backed into a corner. And so in violation of the laws that God had set out with regard to the Ark of the Covenant, these two wicked priests, Hophni and Phinehas, carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into battle. Surely if God was with them, they'd win. 
Surely if the ark, the ark of the covenant, that beautiful, ornate, golden chest with the statues of the winged cherubim adorning its cover with the golden eyelets that held the rods, the ark that had never been touched, had rarely been seen, had almost certainly never been opened to expose the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments or the other particularly important pieces of covenant history. Surely, the Ark of the Covenant of God, the, the very item that displayed the nature of commitment and relationship between God and His people, and where the Ark was, it was said that the manifest presence of God Himself would rest. Surely, if the Ark went into the battle, then they would be effective. You can almost hear the leaders of Israel snicker as they thought to themselves, who could possibly stand before the Lord of glory? Certainly not these pagan Philistines. And so they brought the ark into the camp, and all of Israel cheered. And as they continued to progress from the camp, the noise grew louder and louder, and word reached the camp of the Philistines before the battlefield that the ark of God was there, and everyone trembled among them. And the battle ensued. And as it ensued, the Philistines were shocked. <laughs> the Israelites were shocked. In fact, everybody was shocked except for God. As 30,000 Israelites died that day. And the Ark of the Covenant was captured. Upon returning to the camp, one of the messengers from the battlefield went to go tell old man Eli, who was now in his 90s and blind and sitting by, one of the patriarchs of that time in Israel. They went to tell him that his sons were dead and that the ark had been captured. And immediately he fell back in his chair and his neck was broken and he died. And so the messenger went to go tell his daughter-in-law that her husband had died, and now her father-in-law had died, and she went into premature labor. And in the midst of her childbirth, she too died. But her last words were the naming of her son. And it was a name that told a story. Ichabod. Where is the glory? It's gone. The glory of God had departed Israel. Or so it seemed. And as we think about this first part of the story, we see a couple of really important things we see that sometimes God is willing to endure temporary shame rather than allow us to function in a fake relationship with him. The glory was not leaving Israel in that moment. <laughs> the glory of God had left Israel long before that. 
when they had stopped following him faithfully. It was in that moment that he allowed them to feel it acutely. Sometimes God is willing to endure a public temporary shame rather than an ongoing private shame of a false relationship with people. We also see that mystical or spiritual tricks really never accomplish their intended purpose. Whether it's the athlete who kisses his cross necklace before the big game, or the person who gets a religious symbol tattooed on their body with the belief that somehow that would protect them from evil forces. The Israelites treated the ark of God like a spiritual trinket for good luck. But God doesn't play mystical games, nor does he allow himself to be used or manipulated for the purposes of people. God is way too big for that. He's way more powerful than that. His glory is internally more magnificent than that. And when our cry changes from God, you are worthy, to God, you are useful then we too risk birthing Ichabods in our midst. The land of the Philistines was divided into five kingdoms or five major cities. And the Philistines took the ark of God to Ashdod, which was a place where the temple to their god Dagon was. Now, you might remember Dagon was the fertility god of the Philistines. Dagon was the god that the Philistines had, had frog-marched the judge Samson into the middle of the temple some number of years before to make fun of him and to make fun of Yahweh. And in one last feat of strength, Samson brought down the pillars of the temple of Dagon, killing all the Philistines inside and killing himself. Now we see the temple of Dagon is back. And to place the Ark of the Covenant of God in the middle of the temple of Dagon is the ultimate insult to Yahweh. It's to indicate that Dagon's glory, as displayed on the battlefield, is greater than Yahweh's glory. This would be like if a Chicago Cubs fan took a little bitty Cleveland Indians jersey and hung it right next to a really big Chicago Cubs jersey and the World Series trophy. One gets the glory. The other, the reputation of defeat. Only one gets the glory. And that was the message. But then something amazing happened. Yahweh decided that he was going to show his glory to the Philistines. And it happened at night. And when the servants of the temple of Dagon came in the next morning, they were shocked to find that the statue of Dagon was lying face down, prostrate on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant of God. It was as if Dagon was bowing down before Yahweh. 
And so the servants did not want anybody to see this. They quickly, quickly helped Dagon to his feet and put him back into his place. And it's a bit funny, really, to think that lowly temple service needs to help the deity to his feet. (laughs) It's a bit funny, really, to think that people can put a god in its place. But that's exactly what happened. And then the next night, something worse happened. Yahweh was not content to simply show his superiority over Dagon in posture, but he wanted to show his superiority in power as well. And so the next morning, the temple servants came back into the temple to find Dagon again lying prostrate on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant of God, as if he was bowing down to God. But this time, his head and his hands were chopped off at the threshold of the temple. And the hand of the Lord was heavy against Ashdod. And God terrified and afflicted the people there with tumors. Imagine waking up a couple of mornings, maybe a week after the battle. A great sense of accomplishment the good sore type of soreness that your muscles feel from the battle, the sense of victory over your enemies, the sense that your God defeated the God of your enemies, and then you hear the cries coming from the temple. Dagon had been cut into pieces. And then you roll over in bed and you look at your wife and you look at your children. Tumors are breaking out on their bodies. And then you hear the moan and the whining through the streets of more and more children. And you peek your head out the window to see disfigured men walking through the street, all trying to get to the medicine man seeking relief. But no relief was found. God was there. And he had displayed his glory over Dagon and a glory that you thought to be inferior And now he was extending his hand to the people. Often when God places his hand on you, this is considered to be a positive blessing. (laughs) When the hand of God is on somebody, you think that God has blessed them richly. God is going to use them mightily. God is going to display his glory through them. But here, the hand of God was heavy against the people. His glory, which you thought was inferior, now terrified everyone around you and terrified you. And everyone recognized the need to move the Ark of the Covenant as quickly as possible. The eternal God of the universe will not take second chair to anyone. He will not abide being mocked indefinitely. He will have glory, and he will display his glory whenever he sees fit and however he sees fit. Now one might think that the Philistines would simply send the Ark of the Covenant of God back to Israel at this point. But even though they recognized aspects of God's glory... They were not 
willing to surrender to him? Sometimes we do that too. We recognize God's supremacy, but we don't fully yield to him or surrender to him. And when that happens, God doesn't typically say, well, that's close enough. We can move on now. No, God continues to get our attention. And so the Philistines don't send the ark back. They move it from Ashdod to Gath. And the hand of the Lord was heavy upon the people there. Panic broke out among them. And then the tumors. We don't know how long God waited to do that. We don't know the physical aspects of the tumors, where they were placed or what they were like. But we do know that God was exercising his power over them as the hand, the heavy hand of glory was there. God's name was now great among the Philistines. They saw his power and they felt his power every single moment of the day. But even though they recognized it, and even though they felt it, they still did not surrender to him. We do that too sometimes. Recognize the power and the glory of God. Even feel the weight of it still not surrender to him. This is the struggle for somebody who's five minutes as a Christian or 50 years as a Christian. We would very often not want to surrender our sinful behaviors. We don't want to yield our agenda. We don't want to surrender our finances to God. We don't want to surrender our relationships, our dating relationships, or our marriages, or our friendships. We try to shift to the playing field. We try to delay the obedience. We try to justify our actions. But if God is truly glorious, (laughs) then glory demands surrender. But the Philistines weren't ready to surrender. God could have just destroyed them. But he didn't. He was asserting himself and making his glory known. And so the Philistines moved the ark again, and this time they moved it to Ekron. I'm not sure how the king of Ekron felt about this, There was a couple other cities they could have gone to, but this guy drew the short straw. The word was out. The heavy hand of the glory of God was going throughout the land, and everyone that crossed its path had tumors or died. (laughs) And so when the ark reaches the edge of the city of Ekron, you can hear the cries of the people as they cry out, they've sent the ark of God to kill the people of our city. Why have they done this? And the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them there. God inflicted them with a deathly panic 
And those who did not die were ridden with tumors. And immediately they cried out to God and devised among themselves as quickly as possible to send the ark out of the city and back to Israel. Surrender. Surrender. They finally surrendered because they recognized the power of God. His superiority, his glory. And his glory demanded that they bow the knee and surrender. God displayed his glory among the Philistines. But what about Israel? How would they respond? The story continues with the Philistines deciding to load the Ark of the Covenant onto a cart pulled by two cows and send it on its way the seven miles back to the outpost town of Beth Shemesh. They didn't know how exactly to express their recognition of God's power over them, but they knew they had to do something, and so they crafted five golden tumors and five golden mice and included it in the cart as a guilt offering to God. That seems really, really weird. It seems really, really obscure. But they recognized their guilt. And that is neither weird nor obscure. It's proper. And so, to represent the five kings and the types of plagues that God inflicted them on, they did the best that they could, and they crafted these objects. They put them in the cart with the ark and sent the cows on their way. It was really, at this moment, quite reminiscent of the Exodus. God displaying his manifest presence in a foreign nation that sought to control him or sought to control his people. He showed them a glimpse of his glory and his power through plagues, and now the journey out of the country ensued. And the ark reached the outpost city of Beth Shemesh, and the people recognized it immediately. Most of them had probably never seen it before, but how often do a couple of cows roll up with a golden box with winged cherubim on top? They'd heard of it, Most certainly. And so the village breaks out in rejoicing. They erect a stone monument. They give burnt offerings. The sign of the covenant between God and his people had returned. And therefore, in their mind, God had returned. He was back. (laughs) Had he forgotten their transgressions? Was all now well and good in the land? Well, not exactly. Because God came back the same way that he left, on his terms, with his power and his glory. And so you see that before the Ark of the Covenant was brought back into its proper place and the celebrations of the Israelites ensued, almost immediately they did something really stupid. Whether they opened the Ark to look inside out of curiosity, or just touch the wings of the cherubim. We don't really know. But they mishandled the ark 
And immediately, 70 men died. You can imagine being an onlooker at this moment and thinking about the last now seven months of time that has passed. The battle, the massive death toll, the ark being stolen, the sense of glory being gone, the rumors of the Philistines and the tumors and the tumors and the tumors and the temple of Dagon, and now God has finally returned and immediately people are dead. And one person expresses the great grief and awe and wonder and fear in this sentence. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? When I consider everything that's happened, when I consider all of the expressions of heavy-handedness, when I consider all of the expressions of glory, who is able to stand before him? He is God. He is holy. His glory emanates from him. Who could possibly stand before him? No one. We cannot take him on our own terms. We cannot casually approach. We cannot ignore his works and his ways. And we cannot ignore our own complicity, our own sin, or our own shame. And the whole story is about God showing Israel again that he and he alone is the glorious king of the universe. The Philistines surrendered. And now, with the expression of wonder and fear, God's own people, the people of Israel, surrender to him as well. And for Israel... And for us, we see an important truth. That sometimes God allows us to be disappointed in him so that we realize our truest need for him. That could be true for you. You might not get what you want from God. <laughs> or you might be viewing how God works in error, but he will not let that error stand forever. Because he wants you to see him as he really is. Sometimes he allows us to be disappointed in him so that we can express or understand or see or know or feel our truest need for him. And what God's people needed to see and what we need to see is that the glory of God dictates the way that we engage him. Friends, one of the greatest travesties of our time today in the Western church is the same travesty that we see in ancient Israel. And that is we so often fall prey to think that God will simply meet us on our own terms. That God will bend his will to our will. That God will do what we want or how we want or when we want. But he won't. <laughs> He's bigger than that. He's holier than that, and his glory demands the surrender of our entire being. Who is able to stand before him? No one. Not one. 
but amazingly, he makes a way. And this, my friends, is where the gospel becomes such sweet, sweet news. Because the same God that says absolutely no one can stand before me in my glory is the same God that says, come and stand before me in my glory. And he does so through the blood of his son, Jesus. Galatians chapter 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That John chapter 1 tells of the coming of the Son of God. And it says, The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And therefore, we see throughout the New Testament, and throughout, particularly in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near. We can actually draw near to this throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. No one can stand before the glory of God. But through Jesus, his Son, he makes a way for you and for me to do just that. He forgives us of our sins. He gives us righteous standing. The glorious God of the universe adopts us as his very own sons. And then, and only then, does this most awesome, most glorious, most severe God allow us to stand before him. And so let's not take him casually. Let's not minimize his glory. Let's not make the mistakes of the Israelites and view God as useful rather than worthy. Nor make the mistakes of the Philistines that feel his glory but will not surrender to him in the middle of it. And friends, rejoice all the more in the wonderful gift of the gospel that makes a way for us to enjoy his glory, not to be afraid of it, but to enjoy it forever. Please pray with me. Father, forgive us For so often, we have such a shallow view of you. Help us to see and to know and to feel the glory that emanates from you. God, we thank you for Jesus, that your glory is shown to us not in the heavy hand extended to us, though that is exactly what we deserve but that your glory is extended to us through love and grace, through mercy and through salvation because of your son. We worship you as the king of all creation. Amen.